Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why? Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Excuse me for stalling just a little bit before the episode starts, but we need your help. We need your donations. For 12 years, Why Radio has brought you compelling, long-form explorations of the most timely philosophical topics. From black identity and the limitations of police power, to the foundations of science and evolution, to an exploration of art and music, to the joys of cooking and telling jokes. This show has given you access to some of the world's most compelling minds, always in a non-adversarial manner. While everyone else is shouting, obfuscating, and spinning the truth, we ask why in detail, and in a good humor and an accessible way. And our entire archive, all 13 seasons, is available online for free. Unfortunately, we're teetering more than we expected. With the economic slowdown and so many people hurting from the virus, our donations have slowed to a trickle. We're genuinely worried about paying our bills and continuing on. We know that many of you have struggles of your own, and if you can't contribute, we want you to keep enjoying Why Radio as you always have. Maybe you could rate us, write a review on iTunes, or get your friends to subscribe. But for those of you in the position to do so, will you please donate? Will you make up the difference for those who can't? All of us and all of our listeners will appreciate your gift. Visit whyradioshow.org, that's whyradioshow.org, and click Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Because we're a division of the University of North Dakota, your donation is entirely tax-deductible, and you know that your money is going where it's supposed to. Information about our budget and information about our needs are both on the webpage. That's whyradioshow.org, and click Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks in advance, and enjoy this month's episode. Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why? Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we'll be exploring the philosophy of motherhood with Danielle LaSouza. Suppose I were to begin today's episode by claiming that motherhood is the most natural of all human relationships. What would you think about that? Most of you, I bet, would find the idea appealing. Sure, some of the more philosophically inclined might ask what we mean by natural, or insist that we broaden the statement to include adoptive mothers, not just biological ones, but pretty much everyone would find the idea intuitively satisfying. Motherhood does indeed seem like the most natural of all human relationships, even more than fatherhood, and I say that as a dad. The problem is, if we're to look at the history of philosophy, this statement is probably the sum total of all observations about motherhood up until the feminists in the mid-20th century. It's not just that philosophers chose not to examine the topic, it's that most of them probably didn't think there was much to reflect on in the first place, because they were men and often unmarried, because the male experience was taken as superior, because the life of the mind was always deemed more virtuous than the life of the body, motherhood was just not their concern. Also, if motherhood is actually the most natural of all relationships, whatever that means, it seems to follow that we already know everything about it that we need to, such as being a mother is a moral necessity, so women who aren't mothers have somehow failed. Mothering is emotionally satisfying when individual women don't find it fulfilling there's something wrong with them. 
Females are built to give birth. Therefore, being a mother is more important than her working, being a citizen, or getting an education. Why should we philosophize about self-evident truths? Now, I hope it's obvious that I'm being tongue-in-cheek here. We now recognize, of course, that motherhood is a choice. It is only one component of an entire life, and it doesn't disqualify anyone from other roles, whether personal or political. Getting this through our collectively thick head was what the feminists of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s struggled to do, which is why conservatives work so hard to undermine them. Traditionalists and extremists invest in relegating women to very narrow social roles, and they use the ideal of motherhood as a weapon to do so. No one, not even a feminist, wants to be a bad mom. All of this is to say that the subject we might call philosophy of motherhood is a lot newer than one might think. It contains as many unanswered questions as any other branch of philosophy does, but it probably has a lot more unasked ones. We have to make up for lost time, and one way to do that is to turn our heads away from the canonical men who wave the questions away and ask mothers themselves. This is what we're going to do on today's episode. Our guest is a philosophical coach, a PhD in philosophy who is more akin to a therapist than a professor. She builds one-on-one -on -one relationships with clients and cultivates group sessions with non-philosophers who are seeking to better understand their own lives and to make healthy decisions. Philosophy for our guest is a tool for wellness. At the heart of her practice are philosophical workshops about motherhood. She's constructed a venue for women to explore the experience intellectually. This is a very practical approach to philosophy. It's also an intimate one. All parents understand that their relationships with their children lie at the core of their identity. Few, however, have their own personal philosopher to help unpack what this means. In the spirit of moving forward, then, I think it's important to revisit my initial claim that motherhood is the most natural of all human relationships. Sure, it seems intuitively true at first, but I can't help but ask why. If making motherhood the centerpiece of the human experience sentences women to two-dimensional lives, something has gone awry. Motherhood may be a necessity for the species, but it's not a requirement for any one person. It seems to me that the mistake I made was to rely upon the language of naturalism. Asserting the fact of motherhood doesn't elucidate its meaning. Mothering is both a biological fact and a social construction. It denotes the brute reality that human babies are born of a fertilized egg and gestated in a female host's body, but it contains within it everything our tradition thinks about bodies, femininity, sex roles, love, identity, self-worth, responsibility towards others, and so much more. And this is why we need a philosophy of motherhood in the first place. There is too much to learn and too much to explore to reduce it to platitudes. Motherhood is as complex a subject as any others. It deserves inquiry that is just as sophisticated. And now our guest. Danielle Lasusa calls herself a practical philosopher. She's been a teacher and a philosophical coach for 13 years, has a PhD in philosophy, and is certified in philosophical counseling from the American Philosophical Practitioners Association. She hosts workshops and teaches courses on a range of issues, but specializes in discussion about motherhood. Danielle, welcome to Why. Thank you so much for having me. That was a great monologue, Jack. I found myself grinning and uh, nodding and uh, holding my tongue. Oh, well, you won't have to hold your tongue for much longer, and I really appreciate <laughs> that. Um, our listeners should know that this is actually 
the next chapter in a conversation that you and I had for a long time. We met, I gave a talk on public philosophy quite a few years ago when you were teaching um, at a state college in Minnesota. And then you had me on your podcast, Think Hard. And now we're here for this. So this is, this is a great continuation for me, and I'm super excited about it. Oh, thank you. Likewise. If you'd like to participate, share your favorite moments from the show and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at Why Radio Show. You can always email us at askyund.edu and listen to our previous episodes for free at www.yradioshow.org. All right, so let's start from the beginning, Danielle. What is a philosophical coach? It's a good question. Uh, normally when I explain to people what that is, I just admit that it is a term that I just made up. Uh, it, it, <laughs> In the best actually... tradition of philosophy, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a brave new economy. You get to make up your, your own job sometimes. Uh, I'm fortunate to be able to do that. Um, yeah, so I, I, as you said, I have training from the American Philosophical Practitioners Associ Association and a certification in philosophical counseling. And I um, thought about calling myself a philosophical counselor, but the more I kind of thought about uh, how to kind of brand myself and, and what my clients would come to me expecting, I just was really wary to, um, to have them expect that I had any mental health training, right? I, my training, as, as you say, is in philosophy. And so I just didn't want to misrepresent myself. So I started calling myself a coach. And the more I did it, the more I realized that... Um, that seems m more to suit um, just w the way that I engage with clients, but also, um, you know, just my, my way of doing my business. I think when people think of coaches, they expect that they will work with someone for, um, you know, a, a period of time and be able to kind of achieve certain things. And counseling is sort of ongoing and follows more of the therapeutic model. There are a lot of philosophers out there who will bristle at the idea of putting philosophy and branding in the same sentence. <laughs> do you think that that the new economy, as you as you talk about it, do you think that there's a a place for? Uh, I don't want to say the commercialization of philosophy because I get a salary too, and it's pretty commercial, mm -hmm. right? But but you know, is there a place for philosophy? Uh, in the new economy, and and is is the coaching a natural evolution, a natural progression? How much did you have to change philosophy in order to do this kind of work? Mm. Well, you know, I like to think about it in terms of kind of the original uh, philosophers in ancient Greece. You know, I mean, Socrates was very much a philosophical counselor or coach, you know, he was, he was talking to the sophists about, you know, he was talking to Euthyphro about like, I've got this problem. I have this ethical dilemma, help me sort it out. And so in my mind, uh, this is actually a move backwards to the original intent of philosophy before it became, became sort of rarefied in the academy. Um, and, and I think that it, it is really, honestly, when I do the work in conversation with people, I feel like I am doing better philosophy because I'm actually talking to people about their lived experiences rather than simply projecting my own experience onto all other humans. You know, that's, that's such a, um, 
frequent critique of the academy that the history of philosophy is a history of people sitting in their room with a book and a pen and now, of course, a computer and, and a keyboard and just sort of imagining the world. And there's been a very frequent push to to have that empirical data, to have that real life experience. Do you think that this is going to be a weird question, but I'm I'm, I'm not sure how to ask it. Do you think that motherhood is more powerful than other forces? And so there's there's it has a unique ability to push that empirical experience, that empirical data onto philosophy. Or is the problem of talking about motherhood the same as the problem of talking about the heavens and its relationship to the earth or or whether animals have feelings or or, or that sort of thing is is there something about the experience of motherhood that, I don't know, can't be denied or can't be overpowered by the brute that is philosophy? Yeah, I mean, I will say it's funny because in your, you know, in your opening, you talked about how motherhood is is just as important as other fields of inquiry and should be given the same sort of attention. And the more I do this work, the more I think, no, motherhood is the place where we need to be talking about like if we're talking about anything philosophical, right? Camus said the only important philosophical question is the question of suicide. I, I was sort just of think that the, that. <laughs> <laughs> that the only important philosophical question is the question of motherhood, um, because this is where people begin, right? All human experience starts with someone having a child, and when we think about what it means to have a child, we have to think about the arc of a human life and meaning and purpose and identity and what is it going to be. For that person to experience the world. I mean, in, in, it all starts with the beginning of a new life. And so uh, it, in that, in that sense, yes, it's, I think it's, it's deeply experiential. And also in the sense that, you know, that everyone says that parenthood is like, oh, you can never know what it's like until you go through it. It will change your life. I can't explain to you how, but when you get through it, you'll know. And I think that that's true. I think part of it is this, um, you cannot know what's on the other side of that divide. It's just something you cannot you cannot imagine your way to. You cannot think your way to. You have to live it. And particularly for mothers who birth their children and who get pregnant, like the embodied experience of that, uh, of going through that is just, there's no other way way through it other than to physically experience it. You can't think your way through it. There's another side of that, which is that when, you know, I have students uh, talk to me about, you know, when they might want to be parents and grad students sometimes struggle with is now a good time to, to have a kid. And, and, and the, the students um, who I have long-term relationships with will sometimes say, you know, I'm thinking about having a kid, but I'm doing this. And I would say the same thing. There's no rational time to have a child, <laughs> right? There's, it, 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 it changes your life completely. It changes your identity in important ways. You can't figure it out. I mean, there are certainly moments where it might make a little more sense, right? But but there's no rational time. And so is is the decision to become a mother beyond rationality? Is it is it is it evolution in action? Is it just intuition? How do you start to think about the choices of motherhood if it's so experiential and feels so irrational? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you 
you asked that because as you were saying, there's no rational time to have a child. I think that there's no rational reason to have one either. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, my sense about how people make decisions and uh, even, even, you know, in terms of ethics, like I think that most people make decisions emotionally and then we rationalize it after the fact. And I think the same is true for the decision to have a child. We have a child because perhaps it's, you know, this like evolutionary urge. Perhaps we just really want it. We want to, you know, have a, a small version of, our, of ourselves or we want someone to love or we want to watch this child learn or we want, you know, some of these are more magnanimous reasons than others. But I think we just have an emotional um, feeling about it. And then afterwards, we rationalize our decisions. And we rationalize them in all sorts of ways that, you know, some of them make more sense than others. But I think that that's, I think that's how it works, honestly. So I think there's a tendency in our culture to, once you start talking about motherhood, to make it really child-centered, to talk about what's best for the child and the experience of the child. And I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that very often the mother herself disappears and, mm -hmm. and becomes less of consideration. And I bring that up because often we don't talk about the birth itself and the effects of the birth. And you have a very powerful experience that is also non-rational mm. when, when you gave birth. Would, would you talk a little bit about it and, and, and I guess talk about it in the context of the loss of rationality? Yeah. So, um, so the short version is that I had a baby, uh, and I had moved from New York city to Portland, Oregon, where I live now. And I didn't, we just, my husband and I moved here. He got a job. We didn't really have a community. Um, and when my daughter was about three months old, I kind of got into this cycle of, um, you know, I was very anxious, new mom, as many moms are. We kind of live in a culture that promotes that kind of anxiety. But um, I was I was an anxious new mom. My husband was working out of the house. I was uh, kind of home alone all day and didn't get a lot of support. And uh, and I start that anxiety just turned into a kind of insomnia, and the insomnia turned into more anxiety. And eventually, I got to the point where I I wasn't really thinking clearly, and I was hospitalized for about five days with postpartum psychosis. And that, uh, you know, it wasn't until a couple years after the fact that I, I started calling it that and realizing what it was when, you know, the diagnosis I got was like s severe postpartum depression, uh, which might have been, it, it didn't seem like the right categorization for me. Because really what the feeling was, was I couldn't sleep. And I started my brain started to go kind of uh, a little sideways. I like to say that my philosophy brain kicked into overdrive because the the morning I went to the to the psych hospital, I actually had this moment. It was a total Cartesian moment where I was like, "How do I know I'm not dreaming right now?" And I and I was genuinely asking the question. And there was a woman. A, our neighbor was sitting with me, and I I like thought I'd heard something and she, and I wasn't sure if I'd heard it. And she's like, no, I heard it too. That you heard it. You're, you're not hallucinating. I'm like, but what if you're not real? 
<laughs> I want to interrupt for a second for, for for some of our listeners that you're referring to Descartes and his famous you know problem of the mind and the body and and the idea that knowledge is so imperfect that we might be dreaming and we don't know why and and this is such a powerful experience that philosophers consider this the beginning of modern philosophy it's the 17th century but it's still the beginning of modern philosophy because this mind body problem and the, and 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 knowing that you know how and why we exist changes everything was this yes. for you did it have that same cataclysmic shift um in in your own thinking was there is there a before and after uh postpartum psychosis danielle oh definitely yeah definitely i mean uh, you know by the time I, we were driving to the hospital i had convinced myself that my entire existence was a hallucination, a schizophrenic hallucination. I would wake up in a psych hospital after the right meds and realizing that none of it was real. And I was, so we were, you know, I remember being in the car driving to the hospital saying like, I have to say goodbye to my entire life because when I wake up, it's not going to be here. And that was, I mean, it was a death. It was like, it was like driving to my death. And I don't think you can be unchanged after that. Is that what inspired you to look at motherhood philosophically or was that just – I don't want to call it a happy accident because, of course, it's not a happy story, <laughs> although you recovered, right, which is wonderful. Yes. Um, yes. And, and there are people who don't. But, but it's such a rich experience to mine for philosophical ideas. Is this what led you to the next stage or had you been thinking about that already? No, I never, never in graduate school was interested in motherhood. It was a thing, you know, I, I think that I had kind of um, fallen victim to uh, this kind of liberal feminist idea that like, in order to be a good, strong, independent woman, you need to do what men do. And you need to participate in the capitalist system as a man would with equal pay and equal rights and all of these things. And motherhood became this like, shackle of the patriarchy and an institution that like, why would you ever like voluntarily do that uh, and, and take your out, yourself out of all this progress that women have made. And I think that was, you know, kind of the, the mid century way of thinking about motherhood and, and, and continues to today. And, and I see a lot of women who actually still struggle with this. They feel like they want to be mothers, but they also want to be like good feminists and good, strong, independent women. And they, the, the very, like material experience of motherhood does not allow for independence. So it's very dis disorienting for people. But I didn't want to do motherhood at all. I wasn't interested in it. And after this experience, I just sort of realized that I was grappling with not only how to change diapers, you know, how to introduce solid foods to my kid or get her to sleep or whatever. It was, I am struggling with suffering like what does it mean to bring a person into a world that's so full of suffering i was struggling with a sense of identity like i said i mean i felt like i died on the way to this hospital and now suddenly who am i as a mother i mean what i just said about being a strong independent woman and now suddenly i'm dependent on all of these people and on this system that doesn't care about me and i feel forgotten and i feel like i 
I'm unimportant and all of my philosophy work, like no one cares when I'm wiping spit up off of my face. And so it was just this like feeling of like, who am I? What the hell is going on? How did I do like, what did I do here? How do I move forward? And I couldn't find anyone to talk to about this. I didn't see any place in the public conversation. I would go to those new mom groups and everyone was just talking about how to get their babies to sleep. And I wanted to be like, I just made a human consciousness. Does this freak anyone else out? (laughs) I couldn't find a space for it. And so I made one. You know, it's interesting that you talk about consciousness because, and I've written about this somewhere, I can't remember, the very first time my daughter smiled at me, she was, you know, I guess probably about a month old or so, I'd have to look it up. Um, Mm -hmm. I burst into tears because there was something about her acknowledging me that made me feel like I existed in a different way and that there was a reciprocal relationship that I knew would change my mind. And so when we get back from from the break, uh, I, I want to pull this thread. I want to pull this thread about consciousness. And then I want to start to talk to you about your work with mothers and and the, the overlap between that and philosophical uh, coaching and, and, and see where it takes it us because that's a whole different experience that we really haven't talked about on the show at all. Until then, you're listening to Danielle LaSusa and Jack Russell Weinstein on why philosophical discussions about everyday life. We'll be back right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. I'm talking to Danielle LaSusa about the philosophy of motherhood. And as she was talking about her experience and, and, and the pregnancy and, and, and thinking about all of the ways in which mother, mothers are, are, are blamed and, and all these things, I, I thought about uh, my experience and my wife's experience with, with having a child. And when people ask me, I mentioned earlier my students when my students or friends who are pregnant ask me about uh, having a baby, I always say the same thing. I always say, don't look at American parenting websites. <laughs> don't read what to expect when you're expecting. Go to the Australian websites for information. I always suggest the same thing, the Australian websites. Why? Because everything that the Americans uh, – put together is about blaming the mother. Don't eat soft cheese because you will cause them to have this illness. Don't eat raw tuna because you will cause that this to happen. Don't do this. Don't do that because anything that goes wrong with the baby, whatever that means, is your fault. And the Australians are just chill. They're like, yeah, you know, this is healthy. This is not. But, you know, do what you got to do. And so I guess, Danielle, I, I want to ask first off, especially given the, the, the weight of your experience um, in the hospital, 
how do you deal philosophically with a culture that wants to lay blame on a parent, a mother who in many respects has absolutely no ability to change the thing that she's blamed for? Oh, yeah. It is so, so damaging, I think, to to women. And we internalize it. I mean, here's here's my sense of what's going on. One, this wasn't always the case, right? It It's actually pretty uh, new in American culture, maybe in the last hundred years, that that mothers and women were, were starting to get blamed. Before that, it was just sort of, uh, you know, it was up to God. It was God's will. If you're even if your child died, it was like, well, it's not your fault. It's God's will, and and mothers were just sort of like we are. We're just the the caretakers here. Now, of course, at that time too, uh, I think women were just sort of like considered accessories in the house. They weren't necessarily even given the role of like you have the moral responsibility for the development and uh, safety of this child. But we have that now, and I think that. Honestly, I think it's just one more way of controlling women. It is it is making women feel responsible for everything that happens to their children. And we internalize this with such an intense state of anxiety that leaves many people debilitated. I honestly think that's part of what contributed to my to my illness was this feeling of like, I am responsible for if my child is too cold or too hot or if this happens or that happens. It was like this overwhelming, you cannot put your guard down for one second because something terrible might happen to her and it will be your fault. And that you can't, you just can't live in that heightened state of awareness all the time. I mean, it wears you out. You know, it's interesting because you you talk about the way that it controls women, and I mentioned it as well. And and both you and I already at one point in the conversation, separate from one another, sort of contrasted your experience of motherhood with the feminists. But it isn't a duality, right? I mean, it's not that Mm -hmm. feminists are anti-mom and moms are anti-feminists. That that distinction falls apart the second you really think about it, right? How, how, does, how does feminism contribute to the exploration of motherhood as opposed to sort of the, 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 the silly caricaturish picture that some people fall back on, which is, you know, feminist means anti-mom? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, it, I mean, motherhood is kind of having a moment right now. I think there are more and more people writing about motherhood. And certainly because of the pandemic, people are suddenly just like, oh, we have children. <laughs> like we're acknowledging <laughs> that our colleagues have children that are sometimes in the back of their Zoom calls. And when suddenly they are now more a part of our life instead of like this thing we're never supposed to talk about at work. Um, and, and so I think that there is there there is a certain branch, you know, feminism is not a monolith, right? There, There's sort of certain strains of feminism that, that treat these issues in different ways. And I think there's, there is a certain lineage that says what we ought to be doing is to bringing value to the experience of motherhood and to saying, like, let's look at all of the wisdom that is gained from the experience of mothering, mothering, and and this actually was what the the suffragettes were campaigning on in, in the earliest twentieth century. They said, "We're mothers. We know the ills of society because we care for children, and we care about these things. We care about social welfare in a different way, specifically because of our experience in motherhood, and that gives us a kind of wisdom and understanding of the world that we can speak from." 
And I think that is really that kind of uh, this, you know, fancy ten dollar philosophy word. The epistemology of motherhood is is what we really need to develop and to value. And saying like the ex- the, the embodied experience of carrying a new person inside your body tells you important things about humanity and about life and about society that other people cannot know if they do not have that experience. So uh, epistemology is a subfield of philosophy where the focus is on knowledge. What can we know and how, how we know things? And and what's also interesting is that the example you use, the suffragettes, it's it's hard to overstate how radical that is because the classical Greek world, which a lot of our democracy is built on, was divided into two spheres, the polis, the political arena, which was all male, and the oikos, uh, the, the household, which was largely the female domain. And we inherited that idea that citizenship is somehow distinct from motherhood and that motherhood disqualifies you from citizenship. But the suffragists were actually saying, no, that by being a mother, we're better citizens. By being a mother, we're more informed voters specifically because they're, they're suffragettes. Do you find that as well, that, that the motherhood unifies the spheres in, in the way that the, the suffragettes were talking about? Or, or do you is there still a pull to that sort of classical Greek notion that these are separate things and that they are not supposed to meet? Oh, yeah. I mean, there is a, there's an author uh, named Emily Oster, and she's written a few books about uh, – she's actually an economist. And so she crunches numbers about the, the data when it comes to like, should you really not eat soft cheese? What does the data actually say instead of, you know, what is the fear-mongering, moralizing version? Here? And, I, and um, I have to interrupt she, for just one second. I apologize. But oikos, the word oikos, which was the household, is the root of economics, right? So so oh. that is a natural progression. Polis leads to politics and oikos needs to, leads to economics. So economics technically is the science of the household. I'm sorry, it's my little fun fact and I had to stick it in there because it was because it was relevant. But sorry, go yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um so anyway, yeah, so Emily Oster is this uh this author who writes about these these sort of mandates for mothers and and asking like, well, what does the data actually say? And she, I follow her on Twitter, and she had this thing for a while, this was pre-pandemic, where she said, um, she had a hashtag, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like, um, you know, show your parenthood or something. And she was like, it was basically this campaign to talk about the fact that we have children while at work, <laughs> that, that you know, I think still a lot of people, and I talked to, to women in my Meaning of Motherhood class who say... Well, if, you know, if I have to leave early because I got to go pick up my kid from daycare, I don't want to say that that's the reason that I have to pick up my, you know, that I have to leave work. It's like, oh, I've got, I have an appointment. I have to, I have to leave early or there's an emergency or whatever. But you don't even want to mention that you have a child because then you feel like, oh, well, she must not take her job seriously or her family is going to, you know be a priority over this work or she's not going to be able to do these things. And it's still very much, I think, and that's part of the, like, the, really the, the sadness and the damage that are done to so many women. And and I should be so clear that, like, this shows up in different way for women of different races and classes. But I think a lot of people feel like, um, particularly the, like, white, you know, professional mom 
feels like she's split in two where she has to go to work and pretend like she doesn't have a family and then she has to come home and pretend like she doesn't have work. Because if she thinks about work while she's at home, she's a bad mom. And if she thinks about her family while she's at work, she's a bad worker. You know, um, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question because if I ask it incorrectly, I'm going to sound like a really racist, horrible human being. And I, and I don't want to do that. Um, but you, you, you have an aside. You, you, you said, you know, it's different for, for women of classes and different races. And in part, it seems to me that that's the legacy of the racism of civilization, that, of course, African-American women have to be in terms of mothers because historically they're treated as more primitive or closer to nature. And, 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 and the same is true of, of a lot of Hispanic peoples and that white women are historically the vision of civilization. And of course, that's atrocious and it's horrible and it's so awful that the characterization that, again, I'm nervous about how I want to say it. But how does that manifest itself in your philosophical exploration? Because philosophy tends towards the universal, right? Philosophy tends towards here's a definition. Here's an experience. This is what motherhood is. This is what motherhood looks like. Do this and you'll be good. Do something different and you will be bad. But we've learned, of course, that that it's there's no monolithic way of looking at the world. So how do you deal with the philosophical aspects of motherhood while being sensitive to the cultural aspects, the racial and ethnic aspects, and the history of colonialism and racism and oppression and, of course, misogyny that permeates the whole thing? How does, how does that manifest itself? Well, I think that – I mean – I, I suppose I don't think about those two things as being not a part of philosophy. I think that that is part of our philosophical examination of motherhood. And I think it's important to, when we say, all right, let's look at what it means to be a good mom. Well, when we look at what it means to be a good mom in our culture, a good mom is typically, you know, it's a person who's selfless, who doesn't really have any of her own emotions, or she is able to sort of be emotionally cool and calm and contained and universally loving and serves her family without effort, without complaining. And oh, also she's typically white, middle-class, partnered, and thin and, uh, and good-looking. And this is what it means to be a good mom in our culture. I mean, when, when I talk about this in my Meaning of Motherhood class, we have, we have one week called Good Mom, Bad Mom. And I ask the question, like, given the definition culturally that we have of being a good mom, and of course, this is just a stereotype. And of course, this is just like a, um, the dominant idea floating around there in the ether. It's not true. But can women of color be good moms? Can single moms be good moms? Can poor women be good moms? And of course they can, but it doesn't fit the, the idea that we have of what a good mom looks like. And I think that if we're going to talk about what it means to go, be a good mom, we need to understand that people are grappling with that sort of thing uh, because, because part of what it means to be a good mom in that, in that story is that like you've feed your kids organic foods that, you know, have never had any processing in them and no sugar and all this stuff. And it's like, well, maybe you can't afford organic foods because they cost more because we live in a culture that, you know, subsidizes corn or whatever. I just don't see them as, as distinct ideas. It sounds like the ideal of motherhood that you're struggling with is the giving tree, right? Is that classic mm 
kid's story where the tree gives so much that in the end it's just a stump and the kid sits on the stump. I, it, it's one of the most horrifying and evil books I've, I've ever read because it's all about how a parent and, you know, in this conversation, a mother has to give everything to the child and the child is going to be ungrateful as it sits on your <laughs> corpse, <laughs> you know, the, the bottom half of your corpse because it's tired, right? And, yes. and, and of course, the poorer you are, the more marginalized you are, the, the, the more you have to give in order to survive in a certain sense. So, so but I, I want to ask one other question before, before I shift to, to the groups that you work with, because I'm really interested in that. And that is mm. the role of adopted mothers. Um, We've talked a lot about the embodied aspect of it, and, and certainly giving birth is, is, is a core component of a lot of uh, women's experience of motherhood. But being an adoptive mother is a powerful experience, too. So, so how do you deal with that as you talk about it, as you explore it philosophically? Are they different kinds of mothers? Are they – you know, how do you deal with that another duality? How, how, do, you, how do you approach mm. that? Well, so to be fair, I actually haven't I haven't done a whole lot of of deep thinking about the the distinction here. Um I think my my instinct is that I I think I'm very much a materialist in the sense of I think that what we know comes from what we do. I'm very just like hands-on, our experiences give rise to our understanding of the world. And so it depends, I suppose, on at what point uh, an adoptive mother adopts a child but the experience of changing diapers and you know feeding a baby and keeping them safe at various stages as they get older bring, comes with it a certain kind of wisdom and understanding of the world of what it means to be a parent of what it means to be a human and i think that the embodied birth experience gives a different you know a different dimension to that um but it I'm not sure that there is like a um, a clear and obvious difference that comes to my mind right away. And and part of it is that I don't, you know, I'm not an adoptive parent and I actually haven't talked to many adoptive parents about this. So I, I don't know that I can speak to it in, in much depth, but I don't know. My sense is that there's a lot of overlap and there are, of course, there are some differences, but there is a lot of overlap and we look for the overlap in the actual lived experience of doing the parenting work. So, so again, before we we shift topics a little bit, material materialist in in the way that you talk about it in the philosophical sense is is focused on the physical world rather than idealist, which is the mental world. And so, so what you're suggesting is that we learn to be uh, mothers by um, by the physical experience of changing the diapers, of feeding the child, of holding the child, and. And there has to be then some difference, some real difference between adoptive mothers and and biological mothers. But A, even though there's a difference, it doesn't mean that there's a hierarchy. One isn't necessarily better than the other. And B, it doesn't mean that they're completely fundamentally separate experiences because, of course, I guess if I understand you right, the sooner you adopt the kid, the more similar the experience is because if you adopt a child at 12 – you're not going to have that experience for most people anyway of changing the diaper of, of, of feeding them that way. Is it, it, am I understanding you correctly that that's basically what you're saying? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly we do have to contend with uh, with the ideas about what mother, like what a quote unquote real mother is. And there's there's kind of matching your identity against that and what that means and um, and grappling with that. But I think that the actual experience of motherhood does come from the from the lived physical caretaking. Oh, that's such a wonderful word that we haven't used yet, caretaking. Um, and it connects back to an episode we had, I think, in our first season, uh, the only other time we really approached this topic where Eva Kate talked about the experience of, of being a mother of a severely disabled uh, child while she was also a professional philosopher. So I encourage people to look at, at, at that. Um, I'll link to it on the, on the page. But but. I want to shift the conversation. So you do these groups with mothers. They find you. You have a curriculum. You work through stuff. Who, how, how, how and why do mothers find you? And mm. what is the, what's the goal when they're seeking you out? And I guess how is their, how does their goal, their imagined goal, differ if it does at all from what you end up doing? Um, or what you think the goal is. Mm. Okay, so how do mothers find me? Um, part of that is 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 a little bit of a mystery to me. I think it's um, <laughs> sometimes people just find, just find me. I, I think most of the people who have taken my my course are people that I have met. Um, you know, here in town, they may be clients. Uh, um, one-on-one -on -one clients of mine that, you know, take the class or they may come to me through other practitioners. You know, I know other practitioners in town, therapists and, um, you know, acupuncturists and whatever, and they, they'll refer them to me sometimes. Sometimes people, a lot of people actually just find me on the internet. They just Google like some people actually, believe it or not, Google philosophical coach. Some Google philosophy of motherhood. And there are just so few people actually doing public philosophy of motherhood um, that I that I pop up. And, um, you know, I don't know how these things happen, but they they people keep coming. So that's good. Um, and so they, they come to me. And I think for me, like the thing that I am hoping that people get out of the experience with me, particularly the meaning of motherhood course, is this sense that if you're thinking about really big and intense questions, such as, you know, this feeling of like, I am terrified that my child is going to die before me, which is a real, you know, possibility that lives in the mind of every parent. And it seems like the worst possible thing that could happen to us. And I think it is a very central part of the parenting experience. I think about and it every single day, <laughs> every, every day. single day. And, and I, I, I tell people all the time, you know, who aren't parents, the experience of parenting is total terror from the moment you find about pregnancy <laughs> until, you know, hopefully when you die before your kid. Yes, <laughs> I mean, total is. terror all the time. It is. it is. I literally had a dream this morning. I woke up this morning, <laughs> like 20 minutes before my alarm went off, because I had a dream that my daughter got lost in a shopping mall and I could not find oh, her. God, it's right? awful. But, you know, it's also right. It's also important to talk about this because it's awful, but it's normal. Right. And yes. so and, and I would imagine and then. 
I would imagine that a lot of the conversation that you have is about what's normal and what's not and what that means. Is that is that true? Yeah, I mean, I, I hesitate to use that word, but I think that it's uh, it just seems to me like if you want to talk about that more universal part of motherhood, I mean, the part of my work that I actually really feel most passionately about um, is is this sort of these existential questions like what does it mean to create a human being that is going to die? Whether that child dies before you or after you, that person is going to die. And and you have brought this being into the world and that comes with a huge amount of uh, of weight. And and the other thing is like this child will grow up and they will tell a story about you and you will not be able to control that story. <laughs> uh, uh, they already do. I, uh, you know, I have a 15 year old and I think that the story that she tells of me has no relationship to the story I tell myself. I think it's any, <laughs> a, any overlap is, as they say in the movies, purely coincidental. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's like, it is a total, an utter loss of control, right? And and I hesitate to say this, but I think about Jean-Paul Sartre's play, No Exit, and the, the <laughs> idea of this play is three people in a room, in like a waiting room, waiting to go to hell, and they discover as they start like telling stories about each other and what they were like in life and what the people in them, you know, back on earth are saying about them, about how they were cowards or how they were bad mothers or they were this or that. And suddenly they realize that we're not waiting to go to hell. We're in hell. Hell is other people. Right. And so it, it is this feeling of like, I am being looked at by someone else. Right. You describe this idea of like your daughter smiling at you. She looked at you in this way and you get looked at. And that is a really, I mean, gosh, it is just every day when I walk through the house and I'm taught like the way that I talk to my daughter, the way I talk to my husband, my child is watching and listening and learning. And I have never been more looked at in my life. Right. And all of this is just so intense, like psychologically intense, I think philosophically intense. And part of what I want these women that I work with is to know that this is part of it and we need to be able to give language to it. And it doesn't mean that if you're worried about your kid dying, that you are somehow like pathologically ill. It seems to me like that is a natural thing to do when you give birth to a human consciousness. There's another side too that that popped into my head as you're talking about this about this being looked at, and that's also the validation that we all want as parents, and and the sense that we want our our children to understand the things that we're doing that they can't possibly understand. So you know, when I take my daughter's phone away because she's you know being punished for not doing her schoolwork or whatever. Outside, I'm saying, give me your phone. But inside, I'm saying, don't stop loving me. <laughs> I'm punishing right. you, but don't stop loving me. Right. And, and, right. and there's that flip side that, that we give all these things to our children, but we want things back. And a lot of the things that we want back, they're incapable of giving us or they don't know how to show it or they don't know that they have it. All with the awareness that when my daughter is 27 years old and she's talking to her therapist, I'm going to be the bad guy in the story, <laughs> right? My yes. my wife is going to yes. be the bad guy in the story. And so that's I, – I love this idea. You taught an online course called The Existential Crisis of Parenthood. And I love the idea that being a parent really requires you to rethink – your very existence and the relationship you have with the world around you and specifically with the kid and what your child can give or not give to you. 
Yes. Yes. And what you can expect, reasonably expect or not expect. Right. And, and, and it, it then raises all these questions about relationships and, you know, what is it that you want from the relationships in your life? And then of course, any, you know, for me, it's just like, oh God, I'm freaking out about how to talk to my child or this is, you know, and she's pushing my buttons. And those buttons were things that when I was probably her age, like my parents were having their own version of this and it was pushing their buttons. And suddenly it's like all of this stuff comes to the, to the surface and we're left just saying like, well, that's parenthood. That's just being a mom. And, and I just wanted to like create a space for people to say, you know, I mean, obviously there's, there's therapy, which is, which I recommend everyone, especially as you're trying to do this, but also that this is, um, this is a shared experience and that a lot of us are feeling it. And I think that is really one of the most powerful parts of teaching this course is getting people in the room saying things like, I am so angry at my kids that I just like cannot stop screaming at them and I hate myself for it. And to have another parent, another mother who's not supposed to show any emotion, negative emotion, say that and just be like, oh, okay, it's not just me, right? There's something so powerful in that, in that understanding of the universality of the experience. And this is why the, you know, in the mid-60s, all of the feminists were doing consciousness raising groups because it's not just a you thing, it's a structural thing. It's a thing that of the society that we live in. It's all of these messages that we receive. It's the institution of, of isolated nuclear families instead of this giant village that, you know, we evolutionarily grew up expecting, right? It's all of this stuff that gives us this feeling of dis-ease and fear that our children will stop loving us. So this this may seem like a non sequitur to other people, but it makes sense in my head. Um, why is there such a culture of competition to be the best mom. I mean, this is something that's really gendered in our culture. There is not a competition to be the best dad. I mean, dads want to be liked and dads want to be fun and, and dads want to be, you know, a lot of different things. But the a lot of the motivation for um, m- making your own baby food or, you know, mm-hmm. doing all these other things with kids for for a lot of women is perceived in comparison to other women. And there's a lot, I know a lot of women I talk to talk about the judgment of other moms um, and how powerful that is and how scary that is. And so I guess the question I want to ask, why do you think there's this culture of competition? And when you work with moms, how does that manifest itself? And is it something that can be resolved and is something that can be, and I'll use this word intentionally, cured? Mm. Well, I think that part of the competition, I think it, there's a couple things going on. One is it is this feeling that um, the stakes are so high here, right? It's the it's your children. It's the highest stakes that we have. And there is this kind of... Um, I think a lot of that competition for like, you know, only make your own organic baby food and play with wooden toys and never use the iPad and all this stuff is like this intense perfectionism that is culturally specific um, and and that 
when we grow up in a culture that tells women that their fundamental value comes from being good moms, then it's not just about the baby food. It's about their own identity and the, their sense of worthiness in the world, right? It's this sense of, I need to not screw up my kid and that maybe if I just like do all the right things, they will love me and they will never have to go to therapy. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, like, just good luck with that, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and it's like, you know, you said dads don't compete for being good dads. It's because dads don't have to do anything to be considered good dads. I mean, I had a coworker who like took his kid to the playground and was pushing him on the swing. And he said, all the other women were just like, oh, you're such a good dad. And he's like, you mean I'm, I'm a dad? Like just for showing up and pushing the kid on the swing, you're suddenly a good dad. But if you're a mom, it doesn't matter what you do, you're still failing. So, of course, there's this feeling of never being good enough. I mean, I remember in in one of these motherhood classes and all of us, just this refrain over and over, everybody saying, like, I'm so afraid I'm going to screw up my kids. I'm so afraid I'm going to screw up my kids. And then one day, one of the participants just kind of looked at us and was like, you know, it's no wonder all of us feel so afraid and bad about ourselves all the time. We live in a culture that hates women. And I think that that is a, is real. I think that like, for me, motherhood is such like a feminine, it is the ultimate feminine thing. And I have discovered like, motherhood is ground zero for patriarchy. I just think it is like structurally, ideologically, materially, this is where that all of that damage is done in the most vulnerable time of a mother and a child's life. Okay, so I'm I'm going to I'm going to do something and then I'm going to ask you to yell at me for doing it and and, okay. and 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 you'll see why why I mean that in a second and, and I'm afraid that I'm doing something that which, which on the internet is called lambshading but 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 we don't have to worry about that. You you okay. you talk I don't know you talk is. you know it's it, lambshading is when you um when you when you tell an offensive joke but you acknowledge that you're telling an offensive joke to get away with telling the offensive joke to look like you're making fun of telling the offensive joke but you're really just telling the offensive joke so like a lampshade okay. surrounds a light bulb anyway that's all of the conversation so um you talked about you just have to show up to be a good dad you just have to be a good dad which i completely agree with but there is a flip side which is that if if you're a dad and you're and you're not visibly a dad you are viewed as a predator And so I take my daughter to these concerts and I'm surrounded by 13, 14 year old girls and or young women or or whatever. And 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 I have to turn my dadness up to one hundred and fifty percent because otherwise people are going to think it's weird here. It's weird. Mm -hmm. And and if I'm in a playground and not obviously with a kid. Right. People are going to think it's weird. And here's what I want you to yell at me about. I shouldn't have said that (laughs) we're talking about motherhood. Right. <laughs> Shut the heck up, J- Jack. Stop talking about dad. Stop talking about yourself. We're talking about motherhood. Why is it so hard to keep the focus on motherhood? And why is it so hard to bracket the other conversations, especially when there have been so few sophisticated conversations about motherhood? So, you know, even I, as the host of the show, had no willpower and had to find an excuse to say that. So yell at me and tell me 
you know, why is it so hard? Well, I mean, okay, there there are a couple of things going on here. One, to speak to your point about the being the dad at the concert, I think that that is an example of how misogyny and patriarchy affects all of us negatively, right? Because it's weird because the fear is that you're you're like checking out young girls because right. we think of young girls as sex objects to be possessed and, you know, not as actual people, right? And so that there's the misogyny that is both affecting the young women and affecting the men who are just trying to like be the dad, right? So this is, there's that. So don't, you know, that's the answer there. Second, I think that um, why is it so hard to keep the focus on mothers and motherhood? I mean, I guess the question is for, for, for you, it's like, well, we, we, we have our own experiences and we speak from our own experiences and we think about the things that are important to us, which is exactly what I'm doing, right? I'm thinking about the experiences that are important to me. The only difference is that not many people have talked about the experiences that are important to me. Um, and, and it's part of the reason that we need more women doing philosophy and we need more mothers doing philosophy because, of course, we speak from our own experiences. It's why the history of philosophy is full of, like, abstract ideas about the nature of the universe that were had by, you know, single men in their libraries, rich men in their libraries who did not have this experience of like giving birth, for example. So I think part of it is that it's natural to think from our own experiences and speak from our own experiences. But it's also the case that we, you know, as I said, we, we live in a culture, and as you pointed out at the very top of the show, motherhood is thought of this thing that's unimportant and unworthy of philosophical reflection because there's not, there's what is there to say about it? And, and so I think that it's just, there's so much richness and there's so much depth in it, but it's hard to see that and understand it from outside of the experience. And, and, and I think philosophy has suffered because of it. The history of philosophy, the discipline of philosophy has suffered because it has left out what I consider to be, again, the one of the fundamental questions of philosophy. What does it mean to create a human life? And the fact that we as philosophers have not attended to that is just a real loss. It's a loss for our discipline. I think that's a really powerful observation and a, a really meaningful uh, criticism of the tradition. And of course, the tradition is 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 a tradition of you know conversation between experts. And you're working with people who are amateur philosophers at best. And so, I guess the the question I want to ask is, when these women find you and they they are either on one on one coaching or they're in your group work, what? It, what should they expect? What does it look like to do philosophy with mothers? Um, mm-hmm. I think that a lot of our listeners might find it really hard to have any other model other than the, you know, I guess the, the therapeutic model or the, the consciousness raising model. But philosophy is such a weird thing for people who, who, who don't have a lot of exposure to it. So what what does it look like? What, what, what do they expect and how do they contribute as well as just sort of listen to you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so it's a little different depending on if it's one-on-one work or group work. With one-on-one work, it's really like I consider myself, um, you know, the, the Socratic 
midwife. Um, you know, Socrates talked about when you're in dialogue with someone, you, you're kind of like a midwife trying to give birth to an idea. And I think that for me, I talk with clients one-on-one and, and it's really just trying to get clear on like, okay, well, what is the, what's the actual belief that's operating behind these, uh, these assumptions that you make? What, what assumptions are behind it? What's the, what's the fundamental story that you're telling yourself about who you are, your role in the world, your relationships with other people. And it's the process is really one of just critical inquiry where I just ask a lot of questions. Um, sometimes when I'm working with someone one-on-one, I'll, I, I'll draw on these different resources. My schools of thought that I typically draw from uh, and that I know most about are from the existentialist school of thought, the Buddhist school of thought, the feminist school of thought. And so when I ask questions or offer resources, they tend to be in those areas. Um, And I I do a a lot of work with meditation and mindfulness and the tools of Buddhism as well. And so sometimes uh, I'll work with clients and sort of say, like, here's a kind of primer on or primer on, on, you know, Buddhist philosophy you know, or Buddhist uh, ideas of identity 101. And here's how it works out. And you tell me how that fits with your experience. And is it helpful to think about it this way? And how might you interrupt or shift or change the story you're telling about yourself, given this new perspective on how to think about identity? So it's it's really a, a back and forth kind of relationship. When it comes to the group work, Uh, It tends to be a little bit, the way I've structured the course tends to be a little bit more like, um, here's me giving that information and asking a bunch of questions and and, um, thinking about, you know, here's a a way of thinking about, for example, um, good mom, bad mom, right? And, and, And I'll, in the way that I would teach a class at a university, you know, I, I ask, what, what goes in the good mom category? What goes in the bad mom category? We spend some time looking at that. And then we kind of, you know, outline it and say, what are the common themes? And then I kind of complicate it a little bit more and talk, you know, talk about race, talk about class, talk about the impact of these good moms, bad moms tropes on our psyches. And then we open it up to discussion and people kind of are able to integrate it. So it, it, it feels like my background in teaching very much is present, both in my one-on-one work and in my group work. It's about conversation, it's about relationship, and it's also about drawing from this knowledge that I have in the history of philosophy um, and in these different traditions to offer different perspectives to people that may allow them to see themselves differently and and feel better. We're, we're, We're drawing to a close and I, I want to ask two sides of I guess the same sort of question which is what is the thing that surprises the participants the most uh, that they learned or that they gleaned from from the experience with each other and with you and then is there something in particular that you have learned from them and from doing it that surprised you that was that was unexpected or, or that just sort of overrides you know is the thing that sticks with you the most. So, so, so what surprises them and what surprised you? Mm. Well, what surprises them? I don't know if I can speak for all of them, but um, it seems to me that the, the feedback that I'm getting is 
often about, it's really just people saying like, I'm so glad someone is saying what I'm thinking. It's really just like giving language to the parts of this experience that I have suffered in isolation with, you know, I, we don't talk about death in our culture. We don't talk about grief. We don't talk about this feeling of like, maybe I shouldn't have had kids. Maybe I regret having kids. Maybe I'm really sad that I, you know, gave up all of these parts of my life and you can't be a good mom and regret having your kids. And, and so to, to give people a space and even to say those words out loud, I think is so validating for some people. I mean, I know for me, like, you know, the, doing the reading that I'm, I've been doing as I've been getting into this work, there are times where I just read something and I'm like, oh, my God, thank you for saying the thing that I have been living with. And so that is my hope for people is that they are able to find a space where someone is just saying the thing that they are living with. I think for, for me, it's always there's something new every time. Um, I think the most surprising thing has probably been how rich this topic is. I mean, I I really tiptoed into it. And and I started my philosophical coaching business not I, I kind of put on my website like, oh yeah, I specialize in moms, but I didn't really uh do anything with that. And I didn't kind of like target my classes or really dive into it. And I didn't want to at first because I didn't want to be the like mommy person. I didn't want it was my own internalized sexism, really, around motherhood, that it's not serious, that it's soft. I was just like, I don't want to like be the blogger who like writes about crafts to do with your kids or, you know, how to make organic cheese crackers, whatever. I don't care about that. And I remember I took a, a business class and the mentor of the class said to me, well, then that's exactly why you need to do this work is because there are other women like you who think about motherhood in terms of the creation a new human consciousness and all of the philosophical consequences that come with that. And they don't have anyone to talk to. There is no mommy blogger for them. And so I was, I would reluctantly have come to this work. And the more I do it, the more I realize, oh my God, there is so much here. It is so incredibly rich. There, we can talk about society. We can talk about consciousness. We can talk about meaning. We can talk about ethics. We can talk about identity. Like every major philosophical question is inside the question of motherhood. So that's it, I think. That, that, that too is such a powerful experience. The experience of you choosing something because I mean, you, you tiptoeing up to something and then discovering how validating um, and how rich and how interesting and how much room there is. I mean, you have, you have a piece in the New York times, uh, which is independent of how good it is. And it's very good. It's, it's just an accomplishment in itself. You've, you've, you know, you're doing all these different things and you're bringing to light a real gap in cultural knowledge and in and in the philosophical tradition and it's tremendously important on in the grand scheme of things as well as i think important for everyone's individual lives so i'm so thrilled to have you on the show danielle thank you so much for taking the time oh it was such a pleasure jack thank you so much for having me you have been listening to danielle lasusa and jack russell weinstein on why philosophical discussions about everyday life i'll be back with a few thoughts right after this
Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking with Danielle Lesusa about the philosophy of motherhood. And there were two themes that sort of appeared towards the end that I thought were interesting contrasts. The first was her admission that the phrase mommy blogger and that, and that role that people play isn't always viewed positively, that the idea of being a mom on the internet is such a often stereotype or cliche that there are lots of women who don't want to be it or do it. But the experience that Danielle had of seeing how rich being a mother is as an intellectual exercise, seeing how rich uh, being a mother is and talking about motherhood is for culture and for other people, that's a really tremendous piece of news, right? It's, it's tremendous awareness that that yet again, we are denigrating something because it's associated with motherhood. And that when we celebrate it, we tend to celebrate it in a two-dimensional way rather than a three, four, eight-dimensional way, which is what Danielle is trying to do. At the same time, we had that brief mention of the giving tree, the story of a tree that gives so much that eventually it just becomes a stump that the kid it takes care of sits on without any gratitude. And that's the flip side of the motherhood, that motherhood is so important that it's so necessary and that you have to give so much as a mother that all you end up being is a vehicle for someone else's life and satisfaction. And so either way, being a mother becomes lesser than it should be and Again, that phrase, two-dimensional. What a philosophy of motherhood does, what Danielle does, is make us realize that motherhood can be celebrated not just in the traditional ways that we recognize it, but as an exploration, as an existential uh, field of learning, as a, as, a, as, a, as a tool for intellectual development. And that's new. It shouldn't be new. <laughs> it should be the oldest idea in the world. The oldest idea in the world should be that motherhood is a place of wisdom, that motherhood is a place of knowledge, that motherhood is a place of discovery, that motherhood is important to the culture and to the world and to history. But that just isn't how we looked at it in, 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 throughout time. And that has to change. And I'd like to think that will change. And it will change because of people like Danielle and the people who join her in conversation today, that was you as well as me. And actually, I'm really proud of that. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. I look forward to talking again. And as always, it's an honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life. 
Prairie Public Broadcasting and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>